Entrepreneur.com shares one good reason to start a business. House Digest has a good reason for keeping only one kind of bird seed in your bird feeder. The law office of Joel R. Spivak offers one good reason to file for bankruptcy during the holidays. I guess if Christmas is going to be ruined, ruin it all the way. And Simba told Scar, give him one good reason he shouldn't tear him apart. Psalm 147 is all about good reasons why we should praise God. In each of its three stanzas, we're told to worship God and then given a bunch of reasons why. Not just one, but two dozen by my count, more than that probably, springing from God's power and his goodness and his activity and his tender love for the people of earth, his tender love for you specifically. We don't know who wrote this psalm or what the specific historical setting for it is, but it references the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile of Israel, and the regathering of the Jews. It's possibly from Nehemiah's time when they were coming back to rebuild the wall and the temple. And during that time, God's people endured a great deal of difficulty and hardship and, and uncertainty. But at the same time, they were also able to see the Lord move on their behalf in incredible ways and were being drawn back into closeness and communion with him in a really special and fresh way that hadn't happened for hundreds of years. In verse one, we begin, it says, hallelujah, how good it is to sing to our God for praise is pleasant and lovely. So praising God, offering worship to God is not just about singing. I'm sure all of you Christians have heard before that, well, everything I do is worship to God. I do everything I do as unto the Lord. I don't have to praise just on a Sunday morning during the songs. And that's, of course, true. Worship and praise is not just about singing. It's about a, a life orientation, and it's about an attitude of the heart. But it is about singing, too. Uh, praise is, is, is something that we do together as a group when we gather to sing to the Lord. In worship, we bring together our voices, our hearts, our spirits, our minds, our hope, our faith to proclaim what is true about God. We mobilize melody for the glory of God and adorn the air with honor and awe. To praise in the Bible means to be deeply thankful for something, to magnify and exalt the Lord, to express joy, to shout, to brag and to boast about who God is. And it can be done in the quiet of our hearts, obviously, but Psalms calls us to more than that, something additional to that. It it calls us to actually make music together as a group with our voices, with instruments, and even with our posture to assemble together to sing praises to God. And that's what this psalm is about. And we're told here right at the outset, it's a good thing to do, pleasant and lovely. One translation brings it to us this way. It is good to hymn to our God. It is sweet to adorn with praise. Of course, not only is God worthy of praise, but worship we find is good for us too. It brings an emotional benefit to God's people when we worship the Lord. It helps us align our hearts with him, helps us gain perspective and calibrate our understanding so that we can remember what is true about God and it brings us relief and it brings us joy and it brings us help. On top of that, in worship, we are able to fulfill our priestly duties 
As a Christian, if you're a Christian here this morning, the New Testament tells you that you are brought into a line of royal priests, a royal priesthood, right? Separated out for a specific work to praise the Lord, to serve the Lord, to honor the Lord. And and part of that priestly duty is to worship God. And we're told in the New Testament that God is looking for worshipers. He's excited about people singing to him and lifting up an offering of praise to him. And so it's a good thing, a pleasant thing, a lovely thing. Matthew Henry called praising God work that is its own wages. Verse two continues, the Lord rebuilds Jerusalem. He gathers Israel's exiled people. Jerusalem was a special city to the Lord, the most important city to him. Israel was his special people. And so, of course, that begs the question then, why was Jerusalem destroyed then? Why was Israel exiled? Why were they cast out of the land? Well, it was because God's people turned away from God himself. They refused to listen to him for hundreds of years. Year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation, century after century, God sent messages and prophets and signs and miracles and deliverance over and over again, and they refused to listen. And so after many, many warnings, after generations of long-suffering mercy, some of which we've been reading about in our passages in Isaiah recently here on Sunday mornings, after all of that, finally judgment came as God promised it would, and the people were taken to Babylon. Jerusalem was destroyed. Their defiant unfaithfulness brought the worst disaster they could imagine. And yet, God was still faithful. God still loved them. He would not abandon his promises to them. And so, 70 years after that exile and destruction, he provided for Israel to be regathered and the city of Zion to be rebuilt. You may not know the name Adrian Smith, but you probably know his work. He's the architect behind some of the most famous tall buildings in the world. Most famous is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It's currently the world's tallest building. It's featured prominently in that one Mission Impossible movie where Tom Cruise is climbing outside of a big building in Dubai. That's the one, right? (laughs) And so the Burj Khalifa, this huge feat of architecture and construction, unfortunately, it's not going to be the tallest building for much longer. That title is going to go to Adrian Smith's newest mega tall skyscraper. It's called the Jeddah Tower in Saudi Arabia. It will stand a full kilometer tall, 3,281 feet, 165 floors, hard pass. I don't want to be up there. That's just me. Who's working in this tower is what I want to know. But, but God is a builder. It's a, a, it's a truth about him, but it's a great image we have of him too. He's an architect. He's a builder. He loves to construct things. Psalm 147 pictures him building Jerusalem. And what does he build today? He's still building. He's not retired. Well, God is building a new Jerusalem, we're told. That's a city whose builder and maker is God. His people will inhabit it for all eternity. You can learn about its design and structure in Revelation 21. But we're told that God on top of that is also building his church. You can read in letters like Ephesians and Colossians about how God is building his church, his body on the earth. If you're a Christian, the New Testament explains that you are a living stone in his construction. Very important in his blueprint. You have been carefully selected, shaped, and installed among other living stones for the best harmony and growth for the body of Christ. 
Now, when we look back, if this was during the time of Nehemiah, he says, well, he's rebuilding Jerusalem. Well, how did he rebuild Jerusalem? Well, he used his people. He didn't send angels to lift stones and build things. He used Nehemiah and other Jews who said, I'm going to leave Babylon. I'm, I've got an established life here, but I'm going to leave and go back to the uncertainty of Jerusalem because that's where we're supposed to be. And God's going to use my life, my strength, my ability, my availability to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. And so God built through the people, through his servants, empowering them and providing for them and leading them and guiding them. He built using exiles. And you know, God still builds using exiles. He uses outcasts, the people that have been driven away from an unloving world, right? God receives any one of us with wide open arms and tender care. He says, I receive you and I want to use you and you are a very special part of the building I want to do in this world. Look at his tenderness in verse three. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. A lot of shocking footage came out of the tragic fires on Maui this summer. It's one of the great and terrible things about the cell phone social media age is that we're able to capture all of these images of these you know, world-changing events The worst video I saw was of an injured or dying or perhaps dead woman. She was lying by the side of the road and car after car was just driving past. There were flames everywhere. She was right there on the road and people just were driving past. In the video I watched, a man was in the car filming with his phone and the car's full of passengers and they say, oh no, look at that woman. Oh no. And one one of the passengers just says, just go, we can't do nothing for her. And they drive by and leave her for dead. Now, There's no footage that I could find of another woman's experience. Flames were closing in on Lanny Williams and her elderly mother. Their only hope was to climb a seawall and try to wade out into the waves to avoid being burned alive. But the seawall was too high. They couldn't get over it. Time was running out. The flames were closing in. And then suddenly a stranger appeared out of the smoke and ashes. And he carried the ladies himself over the seawall to safety. Lanny reports that he said to them, trust me, put your weight on me. I promise I got you. And he did. He delivered them over the wall into those living waters, protecting them from the flames. Listen, God loves you and he is not willing to pass you by. He sees your hurts. He knows your wounds. Others may pass by. Other Psalms, it talks about even if my father and mother forsake me, and David has Psalms where he talks about his close friends betraying him. Others may pass you by, but the Lord God, he leans down to bear your burdens, to bear you yourself into salvation with his own strength. He has come to rescue and to save and to to help the broken. We think of the the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's that individual robbed and stripped and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And what happens? We see some individuals pass by that poor, bleeding, broken person who has no hope unless someone rescues them. And and the people that pass them by are sort of pictures of, uh, you know, the the powerful in the world, the religions of the world, the human know-how of the world, and they, they see and they just pass by and offer no help. And then the Samaritan comes by and he says, I will use my own strength. I will use my own resources. I will lift this person up. I will pay what is necessary for this person to be healed. And of course, that's what Jesus has done for us. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. It's Jesus Christ. 
One day, Jesus was in a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he sat there and he opened a scroll of Isaiah and he read Isaiah 61 verse 1. He said, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. And then he said, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. It's Jesus Christ who is the rescuer. He is the hope. He is the healer. He is the great physician. He's been sent from heaven to bind up our wounds and heal our broken hearts. He offers you salvation and liberty and spiritual healing. Verse four continues. He counts the numbers of the stars, gives names to all of them. So scientists are always revising, especially space science, what they you know, think they know about space. But so right now, they say that there are about 100 billion stars in a typical galaxy like the Milky Way, and that there are over two trillion galaxies. And so uh, 200 billion trillion stars, they estimate. One million Earths could fit inside our sun, and five billion of our suns could fit inside the largest known star. And so we think about these things, and that's what space science is so great for. Man, just go and learn some stuff about space, how vast it is, how incredible it is, and, and all of the things, that how it's expanding continually, and the power, and the might, and the distance, and all of that. And we're just awestruck at the power of God. Because with a word, he created 200 billion trillion stars. Let there be. And there they were. And, and, and he names each one of them. And he holds their atoms together, each one of them right now. And so we, we ponder on the magnificent, just mind-boggling power of God. As soon as we think we understand how powerful God is, we realize that we don't know the half of it, the tenth of it, the tiniest minuscule part of how powerful God is, who's holding all of these things together in the palm of his hand. At the same time, though, this verse shows how great God's care is for you individually. Yes, he is powerful. Yes, he is outside of time and space. Yes, space in the cosmos is so great and so powerful, but the stars were not made in his image. You were. The stars are not the special object of his attention. You are. In fact, the Bible uses the stars, all 200 billion trillion of them, as a reference for you of the work he wants to do in your life as a marker of his love for you. You remember that story in the life of Abraham where God was talking to Abraham. He's talking to him about what he wanted to do in his life and the plans he had for him. He said, hey, come with me. Let's leave the tent for a minute. Let's go outside. Take a look at the stars because that's a reference for how much I think about you, my plans for you, the, the work I want to do in your life, a measure of my love for you. You were handcrafted by God in your mother's womb. You are known and loved by him. He has a special name for you that he's going to give you in eternity. He's numbered the hairs on your head, saves your tears in a bottle. He created the universe vast as it is. Why? So that you could be his friend, so that you could be a child in his family, so that you could be his most prized special treasure. That's what the Bible teaches us. Verse five continues, our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is infinite. Even if you're not a sports fan, you see some of these clips of great athletes, and man, we marvel at their skill. I'm sure some of you have strong opinions about who the greatest to ever play your sport of choice is, right? Who's the GOAT in basketball, in hockey, or whatever? It's not LeBron James. Uh, sorry. I'm from the Jordan era, right? 
But we, we, we look at these clips, we see the things these Olympians do, and we say, man, they make it look so effortless. And it, it's just exciting to see them do these things. We can't help but praise their excellence. You want to talk about making it look effortless. The Lord God is holding the cosmos together, and it's not a big strain for him. It's not like he's really biting down hard because the weight is super heavy and that he's trying to get his, you know, his personal best on holding the atoms of 200 billion trillion stars together. He's like, I got it. It's fine. I'm doing all kinds of other things too. I'm working out providence a way that none of us can understand in every life all over the earth. And I'm accomplishing these, three, these things all through time. I'm outside of time. And man, it's, it's mind-blowing. And it's not hard for the Lord. He's making it look effortless. His strength, his wisdom, his goodness, it can't be measured. It's infinite. It's marvelous. And the more we think about it, the more we should realize, oh man, we can be excited to brag about who this God is. Verse six, the Lord helps the oppressed, but brings the wicked to the ground. God helps those who help themselves. It's a phrase made famous by Benjamin Franklin in his Poor Richard's Almanac. But he didn't come up with it. The saying can be traced back as far as Sophocles back in 409 BC. But you know what? Poor Richard and the Greeks were wrong. The truth is God helps those who cannot help themselves. You and I, we're the, the beaten, stripped, dying person on the side of the road in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the Lord comes to save. The Lord comes to rescue, to pay the price himself to save those who cannot save themselves. The term for help here, the Lord helps the oppressed, it's interesting. It can mean bind or surround with ropes. He surrounds with ropes, the people who are oppressed. What's up with that? How does that help? Well, in the book of Hosea, the Lord says something interesting. He says, I bind you. He says, I'm going to bind you with cords or ropes of love. And and these ropes are to ease our burdens and to take us by the hand and, and to lead us on. The Lord's ropes are never meant to imprison, but to relieve and to sustain, to hold us together. But not everyone receives this help. We see it right here in verse six. Psalms all throughout is very clear that there are two paths leading to two destinations. The Lord's way that leads to life and the way of the wicked that leads to destruction. Psalm one, that's the the beginning of the book is all about this. The two ways, the two paths, the two destinations. And people on the way of the wicked, at first they think, well, I'm fine, I'm just living my life, I'm walking my road. But Psalms is here to tell us there is an end to these paths. And one is life and one is death. And we see it again here. You know, as we look at the world growing increasingly corrupt, increasingly wicked, increasingly evil, it's easy to feel like evil people are always high above, ahead of the rest of us. But here's what's true. Here's the end of the story. God is going to bring them down. He will sink their ship. The day is coming. Like it came for the defiantly unfaithful Jews before the exile, the day is coming when judgment will consume the wicked, when it's going to come crashing down. Those who are not walking with God on his path, they should look to the Lord for rescue from their inevitable destruction. He will save them if they will humble themselves and turn and go his way. Verse seven, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving and play the lyre to our God. So the lyre here is called a canor. It's like a small harp, usually with 10 strings played with a pick. I can get behind that. You can get right now a Levite made temple quality canor handcrafted in Jerusalem, carved from Israeli olive wood, inlaid with the jewels of the 12 tribes of Israel. It'll only set you back $9,700 plus 320 shipping. Okay. 
So you can get it right now. I was on the website. I was looking at the price sheet and I realized I don't know how to play the harp and I don't want to lose $10,000. So it's interesting. The Psalms last mention liars or this harp back in chapter 137. You know what happened there? When it mentions them, it talks about how the exiles were in Babylon and they hung up their harps. It says it hung them up in the poplar trees and they just went and they were crying by the rivers of Babylon. Because that psalm is about being in the exile, having received the judgment. And so instead of worship in the temple, there was weeping in Babylon. But the Lord is so good and so gracious. He loves to bring beauty from ashes. And so what has he done here? He gives his people, even though they didn't deserve it, even though they hadn't earned their way back into his good graces, of course not. Even though they had been unfaithful, he was still faithful to them. And so he gave these people their chance to sing to him again to worship with the liars. He said, go get them out of the trees and bring them back to Jerusalem and you're going to sing to me again and we're going to play music and we're going to adorn the air with words and melodies of how great I am and how much I love you. There are Christians who say it's wrong to use instruments in church worship. Their argument is that we have no specific examples or prescriptions in the New Testament to use mechanical instruments. Therefore, it's unbiblical and even wrong, sinful to use them. Ephesians 5.19 is often cited as the proof text where we read, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Here's a quote from a pastor of a church that follows this doctrine. It is clear that there is no authority from God for the church to worship with a mechanical instrument of music. Okay, this isn't an essential issue to us, it usually is to the people who, who follow this doctrine, but maybe you have somebody in your life or your family who goes to a church that says you can't use instruments in worship. It's not essential to us. Uh, we're happy to just be gracious and say, that's fine. If you want to just sing, that's fine. But here's what I will say. The Psalms are quoted dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament. And in Ephesians and Colossians, like the verse we just read, we're commanded to use the Psalms in the exercise of our Christian faith and in our church life. The Psalms were set to music, specifically using instruments from every section of the orchestra. I mean, it says right there like, hey, this is set to this harp. Go to Psalm 150 and you see the whole orchestra represented here. And so not everyone plays a mechanical instrument and that's okay. We all have an instrument, our voice, and we can use that for the glory of God. But those who do play an instrument can also do so for the glory of God. And so don't feel condemned if you have a friend or family member or whoever who says, you know, you're wrong because somebody played guitar in your church. Verse eight, who covers the sky with clouds and prepares rain for the earth and causes grass to grow on the hills. He provides the animals with their food and the young ravens what they cry for. The Lord is a tender God. His care is thorough and comprehensive. One commentator points out how humans at this time, they wouldn't cultivate up the hills in the mountains, right? But there were animals up there. And so we see the Lord is saying, okay, well, you're not growing grass. You're not growing wheat or anything down. You're doing it down in the lowlands, up on the, you know, the highlands, you're not growing it. And so I'll take it on myself to grow food for the animals there because I care about them. There was another commentary I read a while back. It was great. It says, you know, the Lord doesn't have to turn from the earth and, and look away from the earth in order to fuel the sun and say, you guys good for a second, right? 
Just, it'll just be real quick. And then you do some nuclear fission stuff over here. Right? So the Lord is comprehensive and he is careful and he is thorough and he is watching over all of these things and he cares for all of these things. Of course, ravens don't eat grass, right? It says, hey, the ravens are hungry too. You know what? The Lord will have to address their needs a different way, but he has it covered because he cares for the cattle. He cares for the ravens. He cares for the sparrows. But this is the important part of that. You sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, you are worth more than many sparrows. So again, these verses are not just about how powerful God is, how great God is, how magnificent his work is. It is about how fantastic his love for you specifically is. To think about these things always connects us back to, but this is what God is, it wants to do for me. This is how he wants to pour his love and power and activity into my life. He says, look what I do for ravens. You don't think about ravens up on the mountains. You don't care if they live or die. It doesn't matter at all to you. I care about them. And you're worth way more than a few sparrows or a few ravens. Of course, I want to watch after you. Of course, I want to look after you. Of course, I want to walk with you every day of your life. Verse 10, he is not impressed by the strength of a horse. He does not value the power of a warrior. Or your version might talk about the legs of a man. That's the words uh, literally there. Now, we are impressed with horses. We still measure a car's engine by horsepower for some reason. Does anyone, do any of you know how powerful a horse is? I mean, some of you ride horses and things like that, but, you know, it's not like we've been on a team of four horses anytime recently, but... (laughs) Man is infatuated with that kind of strength or with human strength, human physique, right? The legs of a man. But God is not interested in those things. Uh, one of the brothers here, he gave me some, a really important insight. I think I'm going to make this my life first because he said, you know, Psalm 147.10 is justification to skip leg day. I was like, oh man, that's good. That's gospel truth right there. So you can skip leg day when you're exercising. I don't exercise at all, so I guess it's not my, it's not my life first after all. But God's not interested in those things. He's not infatuated with earthly strength, human strength, physique, those sorts of things. What is he interested in? Verse 11, the Lord values those who fear him, those who put their hope in his faithful love. Fearing the Lord is sometimes a hard topic for us to understand as Christians, and it's, you know, it's, a, it's a strange phrase to us in the modern era, and the Bible explains it very well, but here in the Psalms, you know, a lot of times what you'll see is the Psalm will give a line, and then the next line will help explain what the first line means, or it will magnify that definition. And so it's explained in the second line of this verse, to fear God means to put our hope in his faithful love. Deuteronomy 10 is a passage that fleshes it out a little more for us. It says, fear the Lord your God by walking in all of his ways to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so we see here faith and trust and worship and obedience. And so here we are invited to put our hope in God's love, his hesed love. We talk a lot about agape because that's a New Testament special term for God's love. Hesed is a special term for God's love in the Old Testament. And it speaks of a merciful, compassionate, covenant love that is freely given from a stronger party to a needy, weaker party. Not out of obligation, but out of loving loyalty. God values people who accept this covenant love. People value strange things. I found a list of the weirdest collections. Some of them were just unspeakably gross. Let me share one of them with you right now. I guess I shouldn't have said unspeakably. For me, 
Graham Baker takes the cake when it comes to valuing something strange. He has the Guinness World Record for largest collection of belly button lint. After 30 years, he has 22 grams of belly button lint in all of these jars. It's just about the worst thing I've ever heard. Sometimes you hear about the super rich people in the world and the things they collect, the things they value. They're getting these yachts. They have all these sports cars. Okay, think about God. What could God collect if he wanted to? What could he value? What could be his prized possessions? God values you. You. The people who are willing to accept his hesed love and then love him in return. He says, that's what I'm excited about. That's what I value. That's my, you know, of all the things that I could do, of all the things that I could purchase, I purchase you, people who will receive my love. Verse 12, exalt the Lord, Jerusalem. Praise your God, Zion. Verse 12 turns personal here. Exalt your God. You know, you're here listening to this song. You heard it read. You heard it read again here. Is this God so great, so powerful, so good, so loving? Is he your God or is he just a God that you've heard people talk about? Do you know him? Have you pledged yourself to him? Have you received his love? Have you become a citizen in his kingdom? To be a citizen of Zion meant you were part of God's covenant, right? As Christians, we too are members of a covenant, the new covenant brought by the blood of Jesus. We are his and he is ours. Is he your God? He can be. All you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. Verse 13, for he strengthens the bars of your cities and blesses your children within you. He endows your territory with prosperity. He satisfies you with the finest wheat. God's activity causes us not just to survive, barely, but to thrive. Now, we don't always feel like that. We feel like, man, Lord, I'm barely getting by. I feel like I'm being crushed. But the Lord says, hey, my intention for you is that your spiritual life would thrive. And what do we see here? We see pictured civic life, family life, personal needs, communal protection, agriculture, economics, generations. Lord says, I want to infuse and infiltrate and be a part of all the aspects of your life, day by day, moment by moment, in the marketplace and in the family room and in your relationships with your children and in your relationships with your city, all of these things, I want to be there active. The rescued exiles of Israel would still face difficulties and enemies, a lot of them. It was so bad at one point that Nehemiah came to the workforce. And he says, okay, I, I've got some bad news or, you know, I've got some good news, bad news. The good news is the Lord is with us. The other news is that while you're busy troweling this wall, you're going to have to have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other hand because that's how dangerous it is. That's how pressured we are. That's how many oppressors are around us. And the Lord is with us and he's not left us alone, but this is, this is the situation. I'm so not handy. I, I, I just not, I've never had to mortar like brick. I'll tell you what I can't do, mortar it one-handed while I'm holding a 10-pound sword in the other hand and looking over your shoulder. Are there people coming to kill us, right? And so they would face enemies and difficulties, but the Lord promised to look after them and to endow them, it says, with shalom. That's the word that here in the CSB comes up as prosperity in verse 14. He says, I'll endow your territory with prosperity or shalom. Your version may say makes peace. And that's the word there. The Lord wants to give us his shalom. God does not promise New Testament Christians that they will always be healthy and wealthy in a life of ease, much the contrary. 
but he does promise shalom from the prince of shalom, the prince of peace. He says, you're going to get peace from the prince of peace. Scholars call shalom one of the most important theological words in all the Old Testament. And they define it as completeness, wholeness, harmony, fulfillment. That's what God wants to grow in your life. Strength and peace and satisfaction all rooted in Christ Jesus who cares for you day by day. Verse 15, he sends his command throughout the earth. His word runs swiftly. The word of God is powerful. It can penetrate to the deepest part of a human heart where the deepest, most painful wounds are. He can look into that and the word of God can do a work there in that microcosm of your soul and spirit. But his word can also go out to the furthest reaches of space. It's light for our feet. It works healings among the broken. It changes communities. The swiftness talked about here gives us the impression of a God who is eager to accomplish his gracious purposes on the earth. He's not dragging his feet. I've got emails in my inbox that like I should have replied to like six months ago. Literally, I'm like, oh, that guy might think I'm dead because he said, hey man, are you okay? And I just haven't responded yet. I need to get to that. And so, (laughs) but the Lord is swift to send his word. And of course, now we Christians are enlisted to be a part of that swiftness, a part of that spread of the word of God, the good news of the Prince of Peace, the good news of salvation, the good news of healing through Jesus Christ, throughout the earth. Verse 16, he spreads snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He throws his hailstones like crumbs. Who can withstand his cold? He sends his word and melts them. He unleashes his winds and water flows. I read that some of the ancients referred to snow as woolly water, and I loved it so much. It's woolly water. But we see here a God who is continually active in the affairs of the world, in the weather, in the seasons. He didn't just set it and forget it. Though his power is astounding, and you can't stand against it, right? Again, the point is not just a display of power. It's not just that God is flexing in front of us. The point is, and now understand how this powerful God who does all these things orients it towards the objects of his affection, the people of the earth. Because look at the end of verse 18. What do we see after all this power? Water flows. Because the earth needs water. You need water. The animals need water. And he wants it to flow. He's not trying to just freeze the whole world with his snow and his hailstones. His desire is to to sustain and to bring fruit, to help his creatures thrive. God wants to take your life, and the Psalms tell us, make it like a tree planted by rivers of water. Or think of what Jesus said to the woman at the well. He said, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask and I would give you living water because that's what I want to do. Have living water welling up from your heart to flow out from you. And you're going to be this fruitful tree and, and my living water is going to be going past you and you're going to be soaking it up and then it's going to be going out in fruit and all of this thriving bountifulness because the Lord wants to sustain his people and provide and, and give us what we need. Verse 19, he declares his word to Jacob and his statutes and judgments to Israel. He has not done this for every nation. They don't know his judgments. Hallelujah. This great and active God has a special relationship with certain people. It was Israel he set apart to be a special possession among the nations. And now we Christians have been grafted in, Paul says in Romans, into the work of God. God revealed his word and his judgments to his special people. In the Bible, 
God's judgment doesn't just mean a courtroom. We think of judgment as like courtroom, crime, those sorts of things. But in the Bible, judgments include all the functions of government. It means his justice, his rule, his manners, his customs, his ordinances. And so he says, I've revealed this to you. And we know that we're not just recipients of that revelation. We are also custodians of it. We are sent to spread the world, to herald what has been revealed, to reveal it to others. The other nations of the world, the unbelievers around you, they do not know these truths. They don't know them. Rather than resent them for it, we should reveal to them what has been revealed to us the living word of God, the truth of who God is and what he does. Because when that was revealed to us, it saved our lives. And now we get to go and help reveal it to others to have their lives transformed and saved. Why did God call the family of Abraham out as a special group? Was it to just say, well, this this is all I can save and I'm gonna write everybody else off and soon they'll be gone and that'll be nice. He said, no, I'm calling you out so that you can be a blessing to all the nations. He says, Abraham, you're going to be my special group through which I'm going to do covenant and reveal things to you and work in your life so that the rest of the nations of the world can be blessed. And now we Christians are included in that opportunity to be light in the dark, to be heralds of the good news, ambassadors of the Prince of Peace. There are a lot of good reasons to praise the Lord given in Psalm 147. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. It's that kind of poem. It's that kind of song. Our God is great, worthy of praise. This song, which fills our mind with snow and seasons and satisfactions and stars and spirit and salvation, it only begins to count the reasons why we can praise our God, to start scratching the surface of his power, his love for us, his thoughts toward us. But one good reason is reason enough, of course, and we have dozens, thousands. Day after day, we can learn more of his graciousness, his kindness, his power and love as we walk with him and are filled full with his living water, his everlasting life. And day after day, we have more reason and more opportunity to praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray.